Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about Why India Votes by Mukalika Banerjee. Mukalika is Associate Professor at the Department of Anthropology at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and the book is published by Rutledge. I really, really, really love this book. It's a wonderful exploration into elections in India. I had the pleasure of speaking with Mukalika just a few minutes before. Okay, so without any further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Mukalika to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, and thanks a lot for your wonderful book. Thank you. So before we talk about Why India Votes itself, I was wondering if you could first please tell us a little bit about your previous research interests and how they fed into this project. This was my uh, fourth book, and I had um, worked on political themes one way or the other. The first book, that, which was my doctoral research, was on an anti-colonial movement in British India, which was curious because it was a movement by Pashtuns who were Muslim and uh, were non-violent. So it was a sort of Gandhian Pashtun movement, which was like a cultural joke, really. So the research was both archival to see what the colonial records said about it. And also I spent several months in the Northwest frontier um, talking to the rank and file of the movement. Yes. and But, you know, the movement had taken place in the 1930s and 40s. And I was doing this research in the 1990s. So these men were very, very old uh, by the time I got there. So they were above the youngest person I interviewed was 75 years old. And there were no records of them. So it meant looking for it, for, the, for these people. Um, but eventually, just traveling up and down and, and looking for old revolutionaries, we found about 70 of these old men who were there who were able to explain about political mobilization, about being caught up in a cause, about the challenges of triangulating between being Muslim and being Pashtun and being male and being nonviolent, you know, which so it was a real challenge. And it sort of set me on the path to thinking about the importance of ordinary people in any politics, in any political formation. A political formation is nothing unless uh, the masses get behind it. Um, So I suppose a lot of the ideas about politics and participation uh, were forged in that very early project of mine. And then I've always had an interest in Muslim society, so I put together a volume in response to a lot of communal hatred in India and and very violent riots, a book called Muslim Portraits, uh, which was uh, to do with really profiling ordinary Muslims, not victims, not heroes, but just ordinary Muslim lives in India. And completely, slightly off the radar, I suppose, was a book which um, is called The Sari. Uh, It is on the unstitched, Uh, draped garment that millions of Indian women wear in India and overseas. But the idea of writing about the sari was really to address issues of modernity and whether you can wear something that may look quite antiquated to non-sari wearers. Um, But um, I wrote this with uh, Daniel Miller, and our conclusion really was that, if anything, the sari was the quintessential modern garment because of its adaptability and its flexibility and the sense of empowerment that women got from uh, wearing something that was affordable, that was within their control, that allowed them to project their bodies in a certain way and allowed them to inhabit a multiplicity of different roles that modern women increasingly have to. Um, and that's what that book was. 
So um, those were my earlier projects. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this is, I can see you having many of these sort of common themes and this drifting through from your, from your previous research in, in, into this book. And what was really fascinating, I thought, when I, when, I, when I picked up this book was I was thinking when I was in India a few years back and I, and I was speaking with a, with a young student or like in his, in his early 20s and he was very critical, very lefty sort of guy and we were talking a lot and he was you know, complaining a lot about, about politics and about society and then he told me he was traveling on he's planning on traveling about 17 hours back to his village to go and vote. And I always thought that was a real sort of strange commitment to electoral democracy. So I always had that like puzzle unsolved. So I was really happy when I saw your book and I thought, aha, so now I'm going to, and now I'm going to better understand the sort of motivations, you know, as for why, why people vote so much. So with this in mind, I suppose my first question to you is like, what made you want to, what, what was the sort of drive that made you want to write this book? Well, it really was a response to, um, uh, figures that came out of quantitative research, a very well done survey by the National Election Studies in um, um, CSDS in Delhi in the late 1990s, which showed that um, India, we always knew, had very healthy voter turnout figures nationally. They're pretty comparable to international, uh, you know, other democracies in the world. But what was really startling about their uh, findings was that the less privileged sections of Indian society were the most enthusiastic voters. So poor rural women, for instance, voted more than urban males. Uh, Lower castes voted more than upper castes and so on. So there was something going on there about uh, the, the the commitment to voting amongst people who actually got very little out of government. Um, And that set up a puzzle. And it's a puzzle that only ethnographic research could probe and answer because it uh, requires an understanding of people um, and their motivations, which you really can't do through the survey beyond a point. You need to get to know people. And I wanted to understand what creates that enthusiasm for voting. You know, why was your young university friend traveling 17 hours to go and cast a vote, which takes a second. But why was this such an important act that millions of Indians felt they simply had to uh, discharge as a sense of duty? What was, you know, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes at enormous uh, cost of money, time, effort, leave, um, commitments of all sorts of other things. And yet people were willing to put in those costs to go and and do this thing that otherwise, you know, is is taken for granted in so many other parts of the world. So that is so when that demographic came out of that survey research, it seemed absolutely imperative to do some ethnographic research to uh, probe this question. So I should say, I suppose, that this book came much later. Why India Votes, which came out in 2014, is a much later product of a research that started in the late 90s. And then what I had done initially was, because I'm a social anthropologist, um, I decided to uh, get to know people who were typical of this demographic that the survey threw up. So I set my research up in a village um, in West Bengal, in the eastern part of India, where people were extremely poor, surviving barely on paddy cultivation, where um, illiteracy amongst adults was very high. There was very little educational levels. 
uh, but voter turnouts in every single one of the three tiers of democracy from village to national level was practically 100%. So I spent about 10 years getting to know these villages, these two adjacent villages where my uh, research is located, to understand uh, what you know, went on in people's ordinary lives in non-electoral times, um, as well as what happened during elections, to try and understand some, you know, to gain some insight into what motivated them politically. Mm-hmm. And um, what's, I suppose, what's, what's fascinating about the, the way this book is put together is it doesn't just um, build on your individual ethnographic research in, in one village, but also it's it's a much more collaborative project. I mean, it has a, and the book, even in the introduction, it has a long and interesting discussion about the methodology. And to my mind, this is quite unique in terms of the, the way the data is gathered. So I was wondering, could you talk us a little bit through the project's experimental and collaborative nature? Yeah, sure, because that's at the heart of this book, really. Um, and it is an experiment. Uh, it is an innovation in anthropology that we tried Um, And it came about because on the basis of my own village research, I could see that people's attitude to elections was uh, similar to their attitude towards, uh, you know, their sacrosanct duties in life. Uh, For instance, you know, the way a father felt a sense of duty towards marrying his daughter off or whether you buried your mother when she died. You know, these were things that people did not think about. You just did it. And the attitude that people had to going and voting in elections was exactly like that. And I could see that in my village. But of course, you know, and I talked to political scientists and and economists and sociologists and as well as anthropologists. And uh, the problem that we have always had with an anthropology is uh, this business of scaling up, of representation, of representability of your uh, research site. So everybody would say, well, we're completely convinced by your village and, you know, that the people in your village feel like this. But what about the rest of India? How can you say this about India? And so the only way one could respond to that uh, was to take my hunch and my understanding and insight Um, and my conclusions from my village-level research and pose that as a hypothesis nationally, right? So we, before in advance of the 2009 elections, what I did was to take my argument, my hypothesis, which I had published as a paper called Sacred Elections in 2007, and I took the hypothesis and I gave it, I built a team of ethnographers, people who had some experience of field research, who had the local language, and found 12 such people to work in different parts of India during the 2009 elections. But they all had, they were trained together um, before they went out to do their field work. They all spent about four weeks, four to five weeks in one particular site without moving around too much, but stayed immerse themselves in the lives of one particular place, because, of course, the thing with national elections is it's happening everywhere. So you could be literally anywhere. And they had the same set of four questions and they were uh, commissioned, really, and trained to probe these four questions in different parts of India. And the four chapters of the book are the findings of those four questions. So what I did was, you know, when we set up, it's worth clarifying that when I applied for the research grant to do the money, when I was designing this project, I had 
a hunch. I had a hypothesis, but I had absolutely no evidence to show that this was indeed a national picture, that you know, elections were indeed sacrosanct in India. So we had no idea what the findings would show us. But then when people finished their research, we got together again for a debrief, again as a group. And report after report after report just showed that actually the findings were remarkably similar across India, that the experience of, say, people in the polling booth or the language of campaigning, uh, the use of uh, the plasticity of language, and all these things were um, very consistent. They were very different according to the different languages, but that was the only difference, that there was a sort of all India phenomenon around the election, which was remarkably similar. So I pulled all of that together and uh, provided the reader with a national picture with evidence drawn from each of the regions in each of the chapters. Thank you. Uh, just to mention to the to the listeners, these these four chapters, one is about the campaign, another is about political language, one is about the polling station, and then finally you you answer the, the question that you pose in the introduction in the in the in the title of the book is about why do people vote? But before we turn to these um, chapters themselves, in the introduction you talk about this idea the the social imaginary of democracy. So I was wondering well, maybe you can tease out a little bit for us what you mean by this and how this helps you reframe our understanding of elections in India? Yes, it's a, it's a term that the philosopher Charles Taylor uses, and I find it very useful because he, um, you know, for him, a social imaginary represents a shared understanding about something, which is never ne- not necessarily vocalized or written about. So it's not like a theory or an ideology of politics, Uh, but neither is it an individual understanding. It's not an opinion about something. It's that middle ground between between those two. So the shared nature of this is very important. The fact that it is um, beyond an individual's opinion and has some um, collective buy-in from a large number of people is a very important characteristic of this. Now, to describe this collective Indian um, take on what elections mean to people, it seemed to me that it's not as if this was some theory of democracy that people were propounding, Uh, neither was it a stray set of opinions held by some people. It it had that collective quality um, and it had that... um, uh, you know, it had it was slightly removed from uh, any particular. Nobody actually, no theory of democracy actually says that people can have this kind of attachment to elections. Um, and so there is this. So social imaginary, you know, so elections, India's understanding of elections by the Indian electorate is one of those social imaginaries attached to which are a number of ideas about citizenship, about duty, about rights. Um, And these are curiously, uh, you know, even when talking to people who um, uh, often were illiterate, very poor, didn't have access to education, these people too used uh, the language that I've just mentioned. So, you know, the word for citizenship, for instance, in Hindi is nagrikta, or in Tamil, they use words like urimai and karamai, which are words 
for duty and rights, which are used in other contexts, you know, say in, in the context of arranging marriages for your children, you have a duty to do this, or you have a right to the mother's brother's uh, family and so on. Uh, but those words, which sound otherwise quite formalistic, were being used in a very habitual fashion by people, right? Um, and so to capture that sophistication of understanding and to convey its collective shared sense, the word social imaginary seemed to be apt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it works uh, very well. So now let's let's look at the first full chapter, and this is um, this is basically an exploration of the an, expl- an exploration, sorry, of the of the campaign. Now, what I really, I mean, this really came to the fore. I suppose this is because it's the first chapter, but it, but it's throughout the book. Is these like wonderful small stories, basically, of of voters and their their experiences of the campaign or the reasons why they vote and so on. And this is really, it comes out really strongly, I think, in, in, in this first chapter. And you privilege to hear, I suppose, the position of, of ordinary voters and give them a voice. So I was wondering, what did exploring the campaign from their perspective, as opposed to the perspective of, of the parties or as, as we might usually think about doing it, what did, what did that tell us about uh, Indian election campaigns? Well, I'm, I must say firstly, and I'm delighted you got that sense. And that was exactly what I was trying to convey, really to contrast other writings of Indian elections, which, whether by the press or by um, other social scientists, which tends to be dominated by either political parties or uh, by prominent politicians. You know, it becomes very quickly uh, about candidates, about charisma, about their campaign trail, uh, it's sort of, you know, it, it's conducted or that reporting about Indian elections, as indeed others, becomes very stratospheric. You see thousands of people attending various meetings and so on, but you absolutely have no insight into what those people are thinking, why they are there, uh, what motivated them to come, what cost was involved in, in actually appearing for these campaign meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Now, again, in that survey by uh, by um, CSDS, we had found that the attendance at public rallies was very high in, in, in India, by, again, by certain sections of the population. So my aim really was, and what I briefed the researchers to do again, was not to follow a politician and, you know, sort of be helicoptered around seeing how many meetings they addressed in a day, but to stay stationary in one place and to see if you're an ordinary voter anywhere in India, how does the election campaign reach you? You know, what is, how does it arrive? What do people around you uh, say about it? What are the kind of conversation it generates, etc.? So, you know, people are watching television, people are listening to the radio, people are talking to the peddler who comes around sharpening knives across, you know, he does 20 villages a day. What kind of news does he bring? Um, what are they seeing? Are they traveling to places where political rallies are happening? Do they go to political rallies of opposition of a political party they would never support? But we found in large number of places, and this continues to take place in India, that often people go to rallies of leaders whose politics they don't agree with at all, but who has a reputation for being a good speaker or they feel they should go and check him out or her out or just the curiosity, the novelty. There are some who have a reputation being great orators and its entertainment. So people, you know, there are a number of conflicting motivations and discussions that surround a campaign, which really ultimately generates the excitement, the charge that you get with an Indian election. Now, 
for voters anywhere, as you know, we, you know, we're speaking at a time when Britain is is seven weeks away from the national election campaign here. Uh, I've seen it here and I hear about it elsewhere. In large parts of the world, an election campaign could come and go and you might not know. You know, it, things are so quiet. Whereas in India, a campaign, when there is an election campaign on, especially for a national election, the whole country moves into a completely different gear of noise, of visuals, of of um, talk and discussion, everything. Advertisements for butter are dominated by <laughs> political slogans. You know, they are trying to get in their political message or, or you know, jokes about characters or parties. All sorts of things happen, which are not, you know, it's a real, as I say in the book, it's a real carnival. The whole world is turned upside down. Um, and it was trying to capture that air of the world, which unlike, a, you know, it's, so it's not really about disorder replacing order. It's exactly the opposite. Election campaigns in India also bring a sense of um, things working properly. Politicians have to abide by what is called the model code of conduct. So they have to watch what they say. They have to be careful about, uh, you know, how they spend money or about hate speech and so on. Of course, there are feelings in this. I should, you know, add this. By no means do I ever want to give the impression that election Indian elections are devoid of its problems. But what is true is that it is a completely different level of hysteria. And I was interested to understand how ordinary voters uh, receive this hysteria and how they become a part of it and contribute to it. <laughs> Thank you. And I suppose this takes us nicely on to the, the use of language in and around elections. I mean, this, this chapter is also just what's amazing is how witty people are and so and the ways in which language is, is molded into 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 so many yeah into so many new contexts and so many new ways it's it's amazing. So I was wondering can you talk us through some of the ways in which everyday language speaks to electoral politics? Yes, I mean it's uh, it's uh, you know political philosophers like Kaviraj have pointed out that the language of political theory often um, does not change very quickly. You know, we're still left with a vocabulary that's philosophical vocabulary that we try and explain what is going on around us. And this couldn't be truer of an Indian election because, really, you know, thinking about it now for over 15 years, a lot of what happens in Indian elections just simply defies categories that are set uh, by the categories of political philosophy. Whereas I think Indians are inventive. They talk a lot. You know, they, the people love talking about politics. So you can arrive anywhere and the bus driver or, or the person you buy, you know, a packet of biscuits from, everybody is um, wanting to discuss what is going on. And in this constant chatter and discussion of politics, people are incredibly witty. It's a very oral culture. So whatever language they're speaking, they're making jokes. And so, you know, uh, one of the uh, a good example is the really witty ways in which people use the, uh, the Hindi translation, for instance. That's just one example of the word vote. Now, vote is an Indian word. Now, nobody thinks of it as an English word. It's a 
it's a Hindi word, it's a Bengali word, it's a Tamil word, it's a Telugu word. You know, people just say that word in all these, in their languages. But in Hindi-speaking areas in particular, which is large parts of India, um, they know that the official word is matdan. Right? Now, mat literally means your uh, opinion, and dan is to give without expectation. So when they had to make up a Hindi word for vote, they, it was called matdan. Um, now, people take this word matdan, for instance, and break it up and say, look, you can say mat also, uh, you know, has another meaning of don't. So they say, oh, I'm not going to vote this time. Uh, mat nahi denge, you know, or mat mat dena. So they play with the word mat as opinion, but also uh, denial. Or more profoundly, they very poor people I remember this woman who was, um, you know, she made very, very little money by just offering clean water to people at a bus stop, at a bus station. And she didn't charge them for the water, but people in gratitude would drop her, you know, a few pesa on her, her cloth where she put out her water. And so somebody who has nothing, right, she said to us, she said, when we asked her, are you going to vote? And she said, of course I'm going to vote. You know, why wouldn't I vote? And so on. So we said, well, why is it so important? And she says, look at me, I have no money. I have nothing. I don't have all my homes falling down. You know, I have nothing to my name. So I can't ever do all the things that a good Hindu should do. Which, And she was referring to the virtue that Hindus believe they can accrue by giving without expectation. You know, whether it could be charity or whether it's giving food to the poor, whether it is uh, feeding a cow or all the different ways in which you can do. So she said, she said, I can't do Anadan, which is a gift of food. I can't do Gaudan, um, looking after cows. I can't do, I can't even do Shramdan, which is offering your labor for any cooperative project. She says, I just don't have any spare capacity. But hey, you know what? Matdan is free. So she saw, and so she says, that is something I can give, and I can accrue some virtue from that. Now, Matdan, so she was using the word dan in matdan in this very profound philosophical sense that is attached to the word dan that all Indians understand. Um, but then, you know, there are lots of uh, jokes as well. And, and um, you know, people talk about um, a vote, you know, they say vote is our weapon and they say this is it, Amadir Ostro. Uh, we found... In 2009, as it happened, the uh, election season also uh, coincided with the wedding season, you know, because there's certain auspicious days in the year that people, that the Hindu calendar allows for wedding. And uh, election, the Election Commission of India was putting up hoardings saying, Pehle matdan, phir kanyadan. And kanyadan is, you know, the central a moment of a Hindu ritual when the daughter is given away. Kanya is, is the gift of a virgin. So uh, even, you know, even in official speak, it was being reflected. Election officials were saying things like, ye election jo hai, wo pariksha bhi hai, shadi bhi hai. You know, which is what they're saying. Uh, you know, when an election comes around and these 8 million election officials that are involved in this vast exercise, you know, over 800 million people vote in India. I mean, that's a huge, huge electorate, bigger than, you know, most of Western Europe and Australia combined. It's, um, 
even they were saying, you know, it's so nerve wracking for us to organize these things. But there's also a sense of excitement. So what they were saying is, it's an exam and it's a wedding. You know, it's, it's a sense of anticipation and it's a sense of joyous fun. So there were lots of different things like this that, that uh, you get in different languages. And, and um, I was keen not to constantly paraphrase them into English, the language in which this book is written, but to retain some of not only the original voices of the voters, which you pointed out, but also the original formulations in which people um, you know, use the language. So anyone who understands that language is able to read it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's wonderful that, that, uh, that that's kept there. Now, when I first picked up the book and I, and I saw that one of the chapters was going to be about the polling booth itself or the polling station, I was a bit surprised. But then, of course, uh, and I, I imagine some people might say, OK, but what's, what's there to analyse in the polling booth itself? But of course, as I read the book and I realised it's, of course, it's a fascinating arena and once you, you can really understand a lot of the meaning. So I was wondering, first, can you tell us why you picked a polling, the polling station as something which was interesting and then what also you learned from analysing the practices that surrounded it? Yeah, I'm glad you raised that question because... It is counterintuitive, I suppose, you you never take it seriously. But this was a classic case of, you know, what I'd learned from my own research, because I made sure uh, over a period of of several years that I was always in the village when an election took place. I realized actually that people in their journey to the polling station, in their and in their conversations afterwards, something quite significant seem to have happened, you know, in, in people's, um, in, in the experience that they just had. So I began to spend more and more time hanging around polling stations. And sometimes even once I became a familiar fixture, you know, officials would even allow me to go in and take a look, which I was strictly not meant to, but they realized I was totally harmless. Um, and what was significant was that people um, were telling me and this is reiterated in Why India Votes with what people all over India were saying, is that the polling booth is possibly one of the only spaces and moments in Indian public life where some of the most cherished ideals of democracy are actually realized. And by this I mean that if equality if fraternity, these are important values to a democratic ideal, then Indian social life is deeply, deeply iniquitous. You know, so while we live the rest of the time India as a democracy, there is so much social inequality, there's so much constant uh, and relentless discrimination on the basis of gender, caste, color of your skin, how you're dressed, uh, and so on, even fashion. You know, there's lots and lots of ways in which social discrimination takes place. So the polling booths, the fact that when you go to vote, it doesn't matter when you arrive, you are always stood next to the person you've arrived after. There is no VIP culture. There's nobody being being able to muscle themselves to the front as, as Indians are prone to do, the elite in India are prone to do. Um, Nobody could say, well, I'm sorry, this is a Dalit, an ex-untouchable. I'm not going to stand next to her because she's dirty and I, you know, I will be polluted. Those kind of arguments that are absolutely naturalized in normal public life in India were impossible. 
And then when they enter the polling booths, they are identified by their name and nothing else, just their name and their number that appears on the voters list. And they are treated in exactly the same way, regardless of who they are. So this experience itself, I think, just creates a, um, you know, it, it brings voters in contact with what political equality actually feels like, you know, what it is really to be counted as a citizen and nothing else. And as, as one woman uh, said, you know, she said, you know, my only, my main identification on that day is that I'm a voter. That is what is uh, most important on, on this day. And to have that one singular identity which subsumes all others uh, is, an, you know, is, is terribly meaningful. It also, the other thing about looking at the polling booth was it allowed us to look at um, the functionings of the Election Commission of India, which is the most respected public institution in India and does really quite a sterling job, as I was saying before. It, you know, it has this mammoth. It's the largest humanly organized event anywhere in the world, and it does it again and again and again. Um, and it does it with remarkable efficiency in a country where there are severe challenges of infrastructure, of, of uh, lack of willingness, of inefficiencies of various sorts, and they pull it off. And again, rather than just spend time in the Election Commission's headquarters in New Delhi in the capital, it was important to see Election Commission officials at the coalface, you know, people who were actually conducting the elections. What was their experience like? Where were they being sent from? They're always, you know, one of the ways in which impartiality in the conduct of elections is achieved is by uh, drafting in various kinds of government officials, but sending them to places where they are foreign. So you're never allowed to have a, you know, your duty in, in the place that you come from, which invariably meant that you had to you know, start two days earlier, go to the main district office, collect the election materials and travel out to whichever polling booth you've been assigned, spend the night there in large parts of rural India. It meant that you had no electricity, uh, difficult access to food, possibly mosquitoes, uh, national elections are almost invariably held in the month of May when it is very, very hot in large parts of India. And it was important to capture that experience of, of the election commission at the coalface, at, at the polling booth, and to see, despite all these challenges, how they were able to deliver uh, an efficient election. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, it, and it really is like this... Uh... Yeah, this remarkable some of the stories of these of these election officials is is absolutely fascinating. This in uh, that you mm -hmm. in the book. Um, so this book actually um, is the, probably the, the first book that I've seen since I've started hosting new books in South Asian studies that doesn't have a academicy sounding title to, to balance out the poetic title. And I really like that it does. The book is just called Why India Votes, and we get this final we get this answer in the in the fourth and final substan substantial um, chapter, which you. Why do people vote? So the question is, I suppose, the, the last question about these substantial chapters is, so why do people vote? Well, I think there are uh, several reasons. And what we were trying to capture in this chapter in particular is what do people say when you ask them this question? You know, so there are, there are two levels at which you can offer explanations. One is an understanding from watching everything 
Um, and the second level of explanations is when you ask people questions, why do you vote? And I've been asking this question to, you know, Indians for the last uh, 15 years or so that I've been doing conducting this research. And it was important to, to log the answers that they gave. And it was interesting that a lot of people just came back with a counter question and said, why wouldn't you vote? What, what a stupid question. Why, why are you asking me why I vote? You know, why wouldn't you vote? And then say, well, you know, actually, it, it is the question of the privilege. Maybe, you know, your life would carry on fine and you would have electricity in your, to run your fans and you would have water in your taps, regardless of whether you voted. For, but for large numbers of people, being seen to be voting, supporting a particular candidate, supporting a particular political party was a way of ensuring that those political parties offered in return in quid pro quo, um, delivery of very basic uh, amenities that people expected of them. And this has led to discussions of, you know, are these patronage networks? Do people vote for people who give them incentives? Uh, Do people vote for um, people who feel like they are uh, doing them a favor by feeding them? And, you know, so on and so forth. There's a very rich literature out there on, on patronage and democracy. Um, And all of that is entirely true. And what people say at the end of those discussions is, but, you know, why do you think, when I've asked people, so did you get a sari? And everyone will say, yes, I got a sari this time. I'm thrilled. And of course I did. And, you know, of course I took it. And I said, gosh, you took the sari from the political party. And she said, of course, why wouldn't you take it? You know, if you had only two saris, believe me, if somebody gave you a third sari, you would take it. So we then ask, you know, don't you feel compromised? And they said, yes, but what does that have to do with my vote? Because (laughs) surely my vote is worth more than a sari, right? Which then took us into this whole other discussion, which I see really not represented that much in the literature, which is what people feel is the value attached to their vote. And the fact that this is, uh, you know, at, at a very basic level, it is for many, many millions of Indians evidence that they exist. You know, what I call a sort of bureaucratic existentialism, where I remember in, in 2014, in fact, last year I was in Bombay on the day that uh, the elections were being held. And I met this man at a polling station in Bandra. Um, and he was absolutely distraught that his name was on, wasn't on the voters list and he couldn't vote. And so I I was chatting with him and talking to him. And I said, you know, why are you so upset? He said, you don't understand. Look at me. I don't have shoes on my feet. I don't have a house. I used to live in, you know, the slums, but I've been thrown out of there. I have nothing. But the one thing I do have is that I, you know, I'm recognized as a citizen of this country. My name is always on a voter's list. And when that name doesn't show up, then, you know, I begin to doubt whether I even exist. Right? So it's a, again, it's it's a sense of the completely dispossessed. This is something that they possess, their identity as belonging as citizens to India. Then there is this, you know, and then it moves up another level. There is a whole discourse around uh, this is my right. You know, so this Dalit um, woman in Chhattisgarh, I remember her telling me, she said, Ye to hai. this is my foundational right. And it is a right that nobody can take away from me. But it is also true 
that my right to vote is meaningless unless I actually go and vote. So if I don't discharge this right, it doesn't mean anything. And therefore, I have a duty to exercise this right so that I can exercise those other rights that are coming about, the right to information, the right to education, the right to food, the right to health, all these things that as citizens of India we must demand and, and should demand, um, are, are simply we do not have the local standard to make those demands unless we discharge the duty of voting, which is a right that is not only free, it is made available efficiently and, and in a in a manner that it makes it accessible, that is accessible to us. So why wouldn't I vote? And then the sense that, you know, that you're voting because you, it is a contribution that is very concrete. It is small, it is individual. But as people keep saying over and over again that, you know, yes, it is small, but like this school teacher said to us in Kerala, she said, you know, I said, you know, but it's just one vote. You know, you're, you have, after all, only just one vote. It's very small. You really think it may, makes a difference. And she said, well, an atom is very small, too, but it packs a lot of power. Or, uh, you know, the, the woman in, in a mandi in Harda where Mekla Krishnamurti was working, and, you know, she found this where this woman said, look, my job in, in this agricultural grain market is to sweep up every grain of wheat uh, that falls from the scales and, you know, I, I get clean up the place and I gather up this precious grain. And when they weigh that grain, I get the uh, financial equivalent of that price of grain. So I know the importance of every grain and there is no heap unless every grain contributes to that heap. You know, so my vote is like that one grain of wheat that contributes to the heap. So these kinds of metaphors about how an individual singular one uh, contribution adds to a much larger common good uh, you get come across again and again and again um, in the country, which, you know, in a curious way, one can bring into dialogue with political scientists who talk about exactly this kind of uh, discussion. Why bother to vote? Can you have free riders? And why don't people free ride more and, and just assume that other people will vote? Even if they don't, it doesn't matter. Those things are simply belied by the kind of meanings people attach uh, to vote. And I've just given you a small selection of, of the kinds of reasons people uh, as, uh, provide for why they vote. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so we've sort of shot through a book which is which is extremely rich in a in a short amount of time, as is always the problem with, with doing these podcasts. So I was wondering if, if I've missed anything that you'd like to highlight for the listeners. Um, well, I think in, um, you know, there is, I don't think it is just a curiously Indian thing. I think the lessons what um, Indian voters provide to a study like this. We learn something about Indian voters, it's true, but I think we also learn something about the nature of elections generally and democracy more broadly, where um, an attachment, I think what, what the story of people's commitment to the electoral process of India, like your you know, young student friend who travels 17 hours to go and give his vote. And, you know, believe me, millions of Indians do this at every single election. So people crisscrossing the country trying to go back to cast their votes where they're registered. I think this has very uh, profound lessons for 
how an idea of democracy um, gains currency, uh, puts down roots in any society. And, you know, the way, the kind of attachment that people are expressing is an attachment that is almost entirely derived from uh, the authority of the constitution of India and how uh, the imagination of India at independence of being a democratic, secular country with universal suffrage, regardless of the fact that most people were poor and illiterate and the whole world thought India was mad, extending its, its mandate and its electorate to everybody. It has actually shown that when that kind of respect and recognition has been accorded to a population, the possibilities are also immense. Um, because what people are saying is that by enacting you know, the, the, the norms of a certain morality that is um, associated with the constitution of India, you force a certain mode of civility, of interaction on politicians, on the electorate, and you give rise to a set of political emotions which become very associated and particular to the democratic process. You know, and elections highlight those emotions and that civility in very particular ways. And I think it opens up comparison, it opens up questions about what political, what role do emotions play in politics? Mm -hmm. And I've just been reading Nussbaum's wonderful new book called Political Emotions that poses some of these questions. So I think the comparative value of, of uh, this kind of study is immense. And, I, you know, and it also, it's not to deny, and I, I want to, I should probably should have said this right at the beginning in case anyone gets the impression that this is not to deny that there are a number of problems, not just with India, but with Indian elections. You know, I think the biggest problem, which we haven't talked about today, is election expenditure. The fact that there are loopholes in um, the law that show that, you know, particular individuals have to submit um, uh, an account of their election expenditures, but political parties don't, or the other way around. You know, so there are so many loopholes that a political party can spend seven billion dollars as they did in the national election last year and and it's not accounted for money so the role of money in indian elections is a huge worry and you know it needs it it needs reform desperately the the um the other thing we haven't talked about is the kind of candidates who are standing for elections a last large number of them have criminal records do we need a better vetting system do we need a more sophisticated vetting system because what we find is a large number of social activists who enter political parties and stand for elections also us show up as people with um, uh, criminal records against them, whereas their crimes are often political crimes as opposed to uh, rape and murder, which a large number of candidates have against their name. So there is enormous room for improvement. And if anything, I think the commitment of the Indian electorate to the electoral system should act as an... Um, incentive to bring that remote, uh, reform process about, which is what, you know, we all hope will happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, so now that this book is out, I was wondering uh, what projects are you working on now? Well, the, what I'm working on exactly at this point is, is writing my book about the Indian village that I told you about at the beginning. So I have 15 years of data 
about this village and there it won't be, you know, the election becomes just one more event alongside a huge scandal or the harvest, you know, or big festivals. And it is trying to put political life in context of the rest of village life. And there I'm trying to show all the different uh, arenas in which the social imaginaries that we were talking about are actually created. And, you know, where where are these social imaginaries coming from? It's coming from religion. It's coming from kinship. It's coming from the economy. It's coming from cultivation. It's even coming from communism, which uh, West Bengal, of course, experienced for over 30 years. Uh, so it's trying to see politics in a much more rounded fashion through a more classic village ethnography. Wow, that sounds that sounds fascinating. We'll, we'll look forward to that sometime in the future. Um, so it's, there's nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you for coming on. I really, really, really enjoyed this book and I'd like to recommend it to everyone who's listening. It's just a book which is just full of so many fascinating little stories. And I think like all good ethnography starts from the bottom and then and then uh, draws out any sort of theoretical, theoretical implications from that. So I really enjoyed it. And I think it's a book that's not just for anthropologists, but um, for anyone generally interested in, uh, in democracy and politics and, uh, and South Asia. So thanks a lot for coming on and thanks a lot for your book. Thank you very much, Ian. Thanks so much for listening to the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about Why India Votes by Mukulika Banerjee. As you probably gathered from the show, I'm a big fan of this book and it really is an exciting book in many, many different ways. Thanks again for downloading and hope you'll listen again next time. ta